Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Alma 53 through 63, the second part of the war chapters. Which means we are turning our attention to the stripling warriors. And they are a symbol of all of us. If we do what they did, then our preservation in our war will be as miraculous as their preservation in their war. In the midst of your war with Lucifer, especially when everything seems to be falling apart, have hope because if you do what the stripling warriors did, then you will be as preserved in your fight as they were in theirs. In the latter days, in the battle against Lucifer, If the youth of this church do not step up and join the battle, the church will not prevail. And I think the the brethren and the Lord have been doing that from the very beginning. If you look at what we do for the youth of this church, and you look at what we spend in seminary programs and institute programs and youth activities, if you ask any bishop, where does the bulk of your budget go? They'll say, the youth of this church are this church's priority, and they ought to be. I believe we can say with confidence, like Helaman said, when the battle was over, he said, it is to these young men, it is they who won the victory. I truly believe that the day will come when we will be able to, we will all say, it is to the youth of the church that we owe this great victory. It kind of reminds me of the Battle of Britain when we had these 17-year-old kids and there were just a few hundred of them fighting off the German Air Force, and the Germans didn't know how many the Brits had. And these 17-year-old kids in planes held off Germany long enough for America to enter the theater of war. And it's in a book called Seven Miracles That Saved the World, and it's one of these miracles, and it's by Chris Stewart. Such a great chapter. I remember reading, just talking about it, I get chills talking about this. Like The freedom of the world is hanging in the hands of these kids. Teenagers. It's just a fascinating chapter. And it's going to happen again. The church will succeed because the youth step forward. And and it has been my honor to just have a front row seat and to watch those youth and what they do. Now, that being said, we're going to focus how all of us are stripling warriors. So let's make a list. How do you become a modern-day stripling warrior? So we'll start in chapter 53, Alma 53. We get a little bit of a background about their fathers, their parents, and how Moroni is struggling. Because of the foolishness of the Nephites, they've opened the front door to the Lamanites, and now the Lamanites possess these fortified cities that the Nephites built for themselves. And earning back your own fortified city is hard. It is much better in our personal lives to never lose them, to have to win them back. And hence, President Benson said it's better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. But that being said, Moroni's in trouble, and everyone knows it, and they're talking about it. And the anti-Nephi-Lehi's know it, and so they begin to question, maybe we should maybe we should go back on our covenant, and maybe we should join this cause, because would it be better to break our covenants than to have the, Lame- the Nephites lose the war, and then we all lose our lives? I like the verse, verse 13 in Alma 53. It says... They saw the afflictions and the tribulations which the Nephites bore for them, and they were moved with compassion and were desirous to take up arms in the defense of their country. So they've made this covenant with God, and yet they're like, oh, but I got, 
I can't watch it. My, my Patriots die. I can't do it. And I love Helaman where he's just like verse 15. Ah, I don't know if that's the right choice, guys. Yeah, and this is an interesting verse of these tensions and these religious feelings and your feelings for your, your brethren. It goes back to our point last week that righteousness is more important than armaments. And I think Helaman says, yes, having more soldiers would be beneficial, but keeping our covenants will put us in a better position to win the war. Righteousness is far more important than armaments. So you keep your covenants. But then I love verse 16 has it just turns and says, but behold, it came to pass that they had many sons. And that's where the hair on my neck stands up every single time. They had many sons who had not entered into the covenant. And they, now, here's number one, if you want to be a modern-day stripling warrior, I think there's something buried in verse 16 that is absolutely critical to understand. They did assemble themselves together. I like that. It seems like it's not, they're not being told by their parents, are they? That makes the biggest difference in the world, doesn't it, Mike? A willing participant. Think about that. A young man who says, I choose to go on a mission. I'm going on a mission because it's my choice versus, well, my parents are kind of putting some pressure on me or my family's tradition. It makes a huge difference. It's got to be their idea. It has to be because otherwise in the heat of the battle, they're not going to have the determination that they need. And so I would ask all of us, when is it going to be your idea? One of my favorite words in the Book of Mormon, and I've said this in previous podcasts, is where Nephi says, I glory in my Jesus. I love that word. It's not the Savior. It's my Savior. It's that personal touch. I know him, and I love him. And I think we, we all ought to ask, at what point does this become your church? At what point is it your book? We grow up knowing that it's mom and dad's church and it's mom and dad's book. And for a while, that's okay. But at what point is it your church and your book and your Redeemer? There was a wonderful little moment in Spencer W. Kimball's life. He grew up in Thatcher, Arizona. His dad had been sent down to settle the church there. And one time he was in the general store, and he heard two older men talking about the Mormon church. Obviously, these were non-Mormons who didn't like the fact that the Mormons were coming to town and settling there. And they were saying, don't worry, the Mormon church is going to fall apart. Mormon church is going to die. And that obviously must have piqued up young Spencer W. Kimball's ears. And the other one, you know, the one voice said, well, what, how is that? And he said, well, you just wait, because the first generation of Mormons, they were fired up, they were all zealots, it was, it was the new religion, and of course they were going to be faithful. The second generation are the children of those people, and they were born into homes of faith. And then the guy said, but wait till the third generation comes around. The fire will have dwindled, and the flame will have gone out. And the church will fall apart. And Spencer W. Kimball that day clenched his fists, pounded the table, realized that he was a third-generation Mormon, and said, not me. And I would suggest that that day he became a stripling warrior. The day it's your decision. You know, I had a lot of moments like that as a youth. It wasn't one thing. But I remember distinctly having a, a fellow sit down with me and I was friends with one of his children. And he said to me, you can't be friends with my child because you're not Christian. And he sat down and proceeded to tell me what I believed. And I gave him a Book of Mormon and I was 15. I mean, what did I know, Bryce? Yeah. You know, but I had it all highlighted up and I said, you know, if you read this book and think I don't believe in Jesus, 
I do. Now, I may not know what you know, because he was a grown man and I was just a kid. I didn't win the argument. At least, you know, I didn't hang out with his his uh, child anymore. But for me, that was the moment where I was like... That was the Mike Day moment when where, he clenched his fist and pounded the table and said, Lord, I'm in. Yeah, I had a friend once say to my brother, my younger brother, he said, you don't really believe in what your religion teaches. And my brother said, why? And he says, well, you're going to go on a mission. Your parents are going to pay for it. And my brother is the kind of guy where if you tell me can't do it, he does it. And he paid for every cent of his mission. And he showed the bank statement to this fellow and said, I'm paying for the whole thing. And anybody who knows my brother knows that's just he's all in, right? And I think sometimes these little oppositions are what motivate us to to decide, you know, am I going to make this choice? And I think that is so much better than constantly waffling back and forth. And I think it's kind of a waste if you're constantly waffling. Is it true? Is it not true? And these guys are all in, but their kids who haven't made the covenant, they become all in in the defense of their people. Yeah, it's So they were all in by burying their swords, and their sons were all in by picking them up and fighting. And however you do it, whatever the moment that you say, I'm in, Lord, you've got me. You can depend on me. I am joining the team. That's the moment you become a stripling warrior. I think that's criteria number one. It has to be your decision. I think if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you see where I am on this, where there's always evidence on both sides of spiritual arguments, and I believe that's so essential. We have to choose, and it's not a thing of compulsion. It it just can't be, and so I just want to say this. I feel it's so important. Faith is a choice. So there's number one. Now, once they're in, these are a bunch of kids. They are young, and they don't know what to do, but their heart's in the right place. So the next thing is they have to have a leader. Now, verse 19, they choose a leader. And it's interesting to point out who they didn't choose. They did not choose a military man. They did not choose Moroni. They didn't choose Tiancum. They chose a man with very little military experience. You remember in the pinnacle of the, what kind of leader was Helaman? What kind of military mind was Helaman? Remember that one moment where the Lamanites are chasing them, and they pause, and they don't know if Antipas is caught up to them. They don't know if it's a trap. And here's the moment for Helaman to make a critical strategic decision, and he turns to them and says, what do you want to do? And I just I don't see that this man is a brilliant military mind, and that's okay because do you know what he is? He's a prophet. I think step number two in being a stripling warrior is you choose to follow the prophet. The moment you say, Lord, I'm in, and I choose to follow the prophet, what the prophet tells me to do, I will do. We all have to choose a leader. I just love this. They pick him. They assemble themselves. They're not being acted upon. These are active young people. And they have evidence not to choose Helaman. I would imagine some of their parents may have been a little nervous sending them into the battle led by Helaman, who had no war experience. Sometimes people look at the prophet and say, well, he's old, he's out of touch, he's inexperienced. And yeah, he may be old, but he's a prophet. And that compensates for everything else because he will get direction from the Lord. You have to say, I'm in, and I deliberately choose to follow the prophet. Anyone who does that is on their way to being preserved in this battle miraculously. I choose to follow the prophet. I choose to follow him. So number one, it's got to be your decision. Number two, you choose to follow the prophet. And then number three is in Alma 57, verse 21. 
Yea, and they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. Now, I know we, we can take that to an extreme, and you know there are zealots in the church who push everything to an extreme, and I don't know, think it's trying to, to say that same thing. But the idea here is you'd make the conscious choice to follow a prophet, and then when a prophet commands something, even in those moments where you don't understand, you obey. You're committed to obeying. I love the fact that in section 21, the Lord said, we have to receive the words of the prophet as if they came from the Lord in all patience and faith. There will always be a need to have patience and faith when prophets give commandments. I wonder how many soldiers receive a command in wartime that they don't understand, that doesn't make sense to them because it's big picture, it's strategic. And yet that's the key there is know who your leader is, and then do what your leader commands, even in those moments where it requires patience and faith. You are committed to obeying your leader, and I'm in. And that's how you succeed. That's how you succeed in war, and that's how you succeed in the, in the battle. And I think here in, the, in this military context, this probably has some nuance here that we're not totally aware of. And even today, we should obey with exactness, but I also believe we should follow in patience and faith. And it's good to try to understand the theological reasons and implications. And as a parent, how many times have you had this question, Bryce? Why? Yeah. And we, we as parents need to be able to have those discussions as to the why. And I think with our youth, when they see the why, then you have the buy-in. But in a military context, you might get an order and there's not a lot of time for discussion especially with the way it's hierarchical. You just obey your superiors. But in religious things today, I'm a big fan of, hey, let's talk about the reasons why. And one of my favorite things is to talk about it and beat it up. But at the end of the day, I say, well, we got to do it. Yeah, I'm not really sure all the reasons, but you know what? What what am I going to choose? Who yeah, am I going to follow? When Noah says, get on the boat and there's not a cloud in the sky. Yeah. You can debate it. You can discuss it all you want. But the reality is it's going to take a leap of faith. It's going to take patience and faith for you to step on that boat when there's not a cloud in the sky, to leave Zarahemla when there's no fire. And yet when the clouds do appear, it's too late. You can't get on the boat. And so that becomes a major theme of the Book of Mormon. And here it is again, choose to follow a prophet. And then in those moments, you give him your strict obedience. You obey with patience and faith and with exactness. And then look at the end of the verse. I love this. They're tied into their parents. Let's talk about if you want to be a stripling warrior, what relationship do you have with your parents, those who raised you, those who taught you? I love verse 21. We're back in 57, 21. And this was according to their faith. And I did remember the words that they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. Stripling warriors have that unique relationship in their youth with their parents, and in their, in their adulthood, they have it with authority figures. This is in contrast to the kingmen, who are going to question everything that their leaders do. A stripling warrior doesn't question everything that their leaders do. They were taught by their mothers. It was that trust. It was that faith. If you'll go back to chapter 56, verse 47 and 48... They did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. They had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers. So what's interesting is if you look at those last couple, the relationship the stripling warriors had with the prophet and the relationship they had with their parents. Now, you can be an adult and still have that relationship. I love, since we're in 56, I love the relationship that the prophet has with the stripling warriors. 
starting in verse 10, my 2,000 sons. Verse 17, sons of mine. 27, 2,000 sons. Verse 30, my little sons. 39, my little sons. Verse 44, my sons. Verse 46, my sons. Do you see how prophets feel about members of the church? And then how do they feel about the prophet? Verse 46 is the moment. What do you want to do? Do you want to turn around and face the Lamanites at the risk of our own lives? Or do you want to keep running? What do you want to do? And they respond in verse 46, Father. That's the kind of relationship a a modern-day stripling warrior has with the prophet. It's that love. It's that fatherly figure. It's that connection, and I guarantee that's the relationship the prophet has with each one of us. I think these relationships ground us. When we have an understanding and a relationship and we acknowledge authority, whether it's the prophet or our parents, that gives us a rock to stand on. And think about what the adversary wants to do. He wants to take away that rock. He wants to take away that foundation, and he's the master of chaos. In the Old Testament, it's called tohu and bohu, unorganized chaos. And Yahweh, Jehovah, is the opposite. He takes unorganized chaos and says, I'm going to breathe into it the breath of life. I'm going to organize it. And I can't help but comment on our current climate today. We live in a world where clearly the adversary is trying to take away all semblance of order. Now, he's not replacing it with anything. He doesn't care. All he wants to do is just throw chaos in there. And these stripling warriors in the fog of war are acknowledging the authority of a prophet, acknowledging the authority of their mothers, and they're willing to lay their lives at risk to keep the chaos at bay. And I just find this as a type. This is our day, isn't it? It is. It is. And so have that relationship with the prophet. Have that relationship with the people in your lives, the authority figures. So let's go back to chapter 53 and get a a couple more qualities of modern-day stripling warriors. So it's got to be your choice. you got to choose a prophet. You obey with exactness. Tie your faith to your parents, to your those who have taught you. And then in verse 20, I, I am fascinated by this one. Other than the word young, the very first adjective, the very first word to describe the stripling warriors is courage. And of all the attributes that the youth and that members of the church need in the climate in which we live, we need courage. We have to be able to be courageous. Now, very short, quick rendition of Pilate. Jesus is interviewed by Pilate. Pilate knows he's innocent. Now, what is the moral duty of a government figure who has interviewed an accused prisoner and finds that he's completely innocent of all charges? You set him free. But Pilate has this nagging inside of him because if he, if he does what's right, he's going to be very unpopular. In order to be popular, he has to do something that he knows is not right. And Pilate chooses to compromise. John Adams said this. He said, the art of politics is finding the middle. And I think Pilate's solution was, I'm going to scourge him and make him unrecognizable, but I'm not going to kill him. And he thought, that'll do. That's I'm right. going to find the middle ground. He tried many times. He said, I'll, I'll condemn him and then release him. But they wanted Barabbas. I'll send him to Herod. And Herod sent him back. It's just that compromise. I'll do something that is a little wrong, but more popular. Because if I do what's right, I have to be very unpopular. And if anything is screaming out for a quality that's going to distinguish a modern-day stripling warrior, it's the ability to say, I don't care about being popular. I will do what is right. 
And that's what I love about the, of all the words to describe the Strimpling Warriors, I'm so grateful that the first one, other than them being young, was that they had courage. And I think that contrast, in contrast to Pilate, they says, I, I would rather be right than popular. I love um, President Thomas S. Monson said the following about courage. Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but as a determination to live decently. A moral coward is one who is afraid to do what he thinks is right because others will disapprove or laugh. Now think back to Lehi's dream and the people in the building, and you can see why we need courage today. Courage is required to be a modern-day stripling warrior. I think today everything's on the table. I mean, there's conflict about everything, uh, whether it's gender or family or you name it. And I call this the fog of war. The fog of war is this idea that I don't know how many guys my enemy has. I don't know where even my other armed associates are. The fog of war is something that's just constantly everywhere. And so in order to get through the fog of war, we have to understand where the authority lies. We have to understand who's in charge, and we have to be wise. In this case, we're going to have later a prophet who's going to get revelation as to where to go. The fog of war is so real. So much happens in real time in war that we simply don't know or understand. One of the classic examples of of this is in World War II, Hitler made a non-aggression pact with Stalin and he promised, hey, don't attack me and I won't attack you. Well, he ended up breaking his agreement. And on June 22nd, 1941, he sent troops into Russia. And he told his people that Russia was the aggressor. To me, that's so fascinating that during the time of war, and I think we live in this time today, that there's just lies everywhere. And how are we going to know the truth? And I think that's where we're back to what Bryce talked about, the importance of a prophet. To me, it's just so fascinating how, how lies and the fog of war is such a prevalent thing that's happening today. And there's a great author by the name of Andy Andrews, and he wrote a book called How Do You Kill 11 Million People? And he asks how leaders are able to perpetuate horrible acts against their own people. And so you could put all kinds of people in this narrative. You could put Herod, you know, look at all the horrible things he did to his people, Zarahemna or Amalekiah. I found Andy Andrews' message to be so thought-provoking. I want to just share this quote. He says, Only a clear understanding of the answer to this question, how do you kill 11 million people, and the awareness of an involved populace can prevent history from continuing to repeat itself as it already has time and again. To be absolutely clear, the method a government employs in order to do the actual killing is not in question. We already know the variety of tools used to accomplish mass murder. Neither do we need to consider the mindset of those deranged enough to conceive and carry out a slaughter of innocents. History has provided ample documentation of the damage done to societies. What we need to understand is how 11 million people allow themselves to be killed. Obviously, that's an oversimplification, but think with me here. If a single terrorist begins to shoot automatic weapons in a movie theater containing 300 people, the lone gunman couldn't possibly kill all 300. Why? Because once the shooting started, most of the crowd would run, take off, or hide, or fight. So why, for month after month and year after year, did millions of intelligent human beings, guarded by relatively few Nazi soldiers, willingly load their families into tens of thousands of cattle cars to be transported by rail to one of the many death camps scattered throughout Europe? How can a condemned group of people headed for the gas chamber be compelled to act in such a docile manner? 
The answer is breathtakingly simple, and it is a method still being used by some people today. How do you kill 11 million people? You lie to them. That's it. According to the testimony provided under oath by witnesses at the Nuremberg Trials, In 1946, the act of transporting the Jews to death camps posed a particular challenge for the man who had been named operational manager of the genocide, Adolf Eichmann, known as the master. Eichmann went about the task as if he were the president of a corporation. He set goals, he recruited staff, and he monitored the progress. Success was rewarded, failure was punished. How did he do it? An intricate web of lies to be delivered in stages was designed to ensure the cooperation of the condemned but unknowing Jews. First, the fences were erected, encircling neighborhoods. Eichmann or his representations met with Jewish leaders to assure them that the physical restrictions were placed in their community were temporary. As long as they cooperated, he told them no harm would come to them. Second, Bribes were taken from the Jews in the promise of better living conditions. The bribes convinced the Jews that the situation was indeed temporary. Finally, Eichmann would appear before a gathering of the entire ghetto, accompanied by an entourage of no more than maybe 30 local men and officers of his own, mainly unarmed officers. He addressed the crowd in a strong, clear voice. According to sworn statements, these were likely his very words. Jews, At last, it can be reported to you that the Russians are advancing on our eastern front. I apologize for the hasty way we brought you into our protection. Unfortunately, there was little time to explain. You have nothing to worry about. We only want what's best for you. You will leave here shortly and be sent to very fine places indeed. You will work there, your wives will stay at home, and your children will go to school. You will have wonderful lives. We will all be terribly crowded on these trains, but don't worry. The journey is short. Men... Please keep your families together and board the rail cars in an orderly manner. Quickly now, my friends, we must hurry. The Jewish husbands and fathers were relieved by the explanation and comforted by the fact that there weren't any more armed soldiers. They helped their families into the cars. The containers designed to transport eight cows were packed with a minimum of 100 human beings and quickly padlocked. At that moment, they were lost. The trains rarely stopped until well inside the gates of Auschwitz or Belzec or Sobador or Treblinka. A line drawn up by the German ministry in 1967 names more than 1,000 concentration camps and subcamps accessible by rail. The Jewish Virtual Library says it is estimated that the Nazis established 15,000 camps in the occupied territories. And that is how you kill 11 million people. You lie to them. These chapters in Alma show me that one thing, constantly in the fog of war, with all the chaos that we've been talking about, we have to have ground that we can stand on. And my testimony is that the prophets and the scriptures, for me, specifically the Book of Mormon, give me ground where I can get my bearings. And I love that. I love that idea that the stripling warriors knew where the authority was. They chose Helaman as their leader. They chose, and they were loyal to him. Obeyed with exactness, and then they were courageous. Think about the combination of all of those. I chose my leader, I followed exactly, and I was courageous. In the coming chapter, in Helaman chapter 5, in such a symbolic moment, Nephi and Lehi will be in a prison and then they will be overshadowed by darkness. Now listen very carefully to this verse. This is Helaman 5.36. It came to pass that he turned him about, and behold, he saw through the cloud of darkness the faces of Nephi and Lehi. 
I testify that no matter how thick the darkness, the face of the prophet will always shine through the darkness. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, no matter the war you're in, the face of the prophet will shine through the darkness. Grab that light and obey it exactly. And don't be afraid. Courage is that act of holding on to what you know is right. So let's add to our list. So your idea, choose a prophet, obey with exactness, create that relationship with authority figures like the stripling warriors had, and then courage. Let's add to that. Notice back in chapter 53, verse 20, after it mentions that they were courageous, the very next two go hand in hand. They were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true. And I would balance those. They were very active in their religion and true to it. And I would suggest those are two vital qualities because I think we all know people who are active but not true. And sometimes you meet someone who is true but not actively engaged in it. And here the stripling warriors are actively engaged. Now think about what that means in terms of temple attendance or scripture attendance. Can you think of people who are true to the gospel but are not actively engaged in temple attendance or scripture study? Think about this, like they know what they know, but they know why they know. In other words, they're thoughtful Latter-day Saints. They're true, but this is my interpretation of this, right? They're true, but they've thought it out. And maybe that's just kind of how I approach it. Loyalty is important. Boyd K. Packer said this, a man who says he will sustain the president of the church or the general authorities, but can't sustain his own bishop is deceiving himself. He's not true. But he may be really active and may have all kinds of ideas and thoughts. And, and that's a fascinating thing. So I like that, right? They're, they're loyal, but they're also active. They're yeah. doing something. So. I love that combination. They were exceedingly valiant for courage, for strength and activity, but they were true at all times. Verse 21 adds another one. They were men of truth and soberness. And that word soberness is intriguing. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with drunkenness. It seems to me that they were mature. They were beyond their years. They took serious things that were supposed to be serious. They knew when to laugh, but they knew when not to laugh. They were balanced. And that can be rare in a young man. Very rare (laughs) in a young person who knows when to be serious and when not to. They were men of soberness. So that's a beautiful list. Let's jump to chapter 56. So in the next two chapters, it's Moroni and the exchange of prisoners. And then in chapter 56 is where the, the stripling warriors face their battle. Now, you remember, the Lamanites have taken possession of the fortified Nephite cities. So getting them out is a trick. So the plan is to run the stripling warriors in front of the largest fortified city in hopes that the Lamanite army will come out and chase them. And then Antipas and his army is going to follow them up. And then the stripling warriors can turn around and then they can get the Lamanites from both sides. And it's working great, because as soon as the stripling warriors pull in front of them, sure enough, the Lamanites come out. But then after a while, they stop, and they don't know. The stripling warriors don't know, A, if they've stopped because Antipas caught up to them. If so, we need to turn around and help Antipas. Or have they stopped because they figured out our plan, and it's a trap. They've stopped so that we turn around, and then they can slaughter us, and then turn around and face Antipas without the stripling warriors. And there's that moment. Here's the moment of hesitation. And what I love, talking about the fog of war, in that moment of hesitation, 
they don't hesitate. And it's a matter of faith. They, they hold on to the promises. They hold on to faith. And so, verse 44, what say ye, my sons? Will you go to battle? And now I say unto you, my beloved brother Moroni, that never had I seen so great courage, yea, not amongst all the Nephites. For as I had ever called them my sons, they were all very young. Even so they said unto me, Father, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. And they had not, never had fought, yet they did not fear death. Why? They did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Yea, and now we come back to they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mother, saying, we do not doubt our mothers knew it. I just got to say, you mothers out there, I don't think you realize the influence you have. Especially when it comes to faith. So vital. It was my mother's faith that I held on to for most of my childhood. Same. It was just my mother's faith, and it gives me an anchor. Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true in that defining moment when fear rises up. Do you remember when Peter jumps out of the boat? Now, Jesus had approached him and said, and, Jesus, and Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, Peter knew what that meant. Peter was asking, can I come out and be on the water? And Jesus just said, come. So how many experiences had Peter had with Jesus that this was possible? So did Peter test the water? Of course not. He jumped out full of faith. And then the storm. And he took his eyes off the Savior and he focused on the storm. And that's what we do. Faith is the art of holding on in that critical moment. This is the moment, and I'm going to hold on to the promises. I'm going to hold on to what I know is true. I'm going to hold on to Alma 44.4, that God will keep and support and preserve us as long as we are faithful unto him. I'm going to hold on to that promise, even at this dark moment where I don't see how we could possibly survive this battle. And so these young men were men of faith, and they'd been taught faith, and they held on to faith. And so they fought, and they fought valiantly. And when it was over, chapter 57 is the continuation of this letter. Verse 20 of 57, as the remainder of our army were about to give way before the Lamanites, behold, these 2,060 were firm and undaunted. There's another great quality, firm and undaunted. Yea, they did obey, they did obey and observe to obey, perform every word with exactness. And then verse 22, because of that, because of these qualities, because they followed a prophet, because they obeyed with exactness, because they were courageous, because they were true and active, firm and undaunted, and they held to their faith. It was these, my son, and those men who had been selected to convey the prisoners to whom we owe this great victory. Now, he starts adding them up. Verse 25, he doesn't expect very many of them to have survived. And I don't think they expected to survive. They probably expected to die in this battle. But if they could hold off enough for Antipas to do his job, then it would have been worth it. So when he starts numbering them, verse 25, it came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060 who had fainted because of the loss of blood. So each, they took their wounds. 
Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God and to our great astonishment and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them that did perish. And now verse 26, and now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army. Yea, that they should be spared while there were a thousand of our brethren seasoned military Nephite warriors who died. A thousand Nephite warriors died, but not a single stripling warrior. And the stripling warriors fought valiantly. They didn't hide in the back. They fought valiantly. Their preservation was astonishing. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceedingly faith. This is Mormon waving his arms and saying, you Latter-day Saints that live in the middle of this war, the culmination of the war that began in premortal life, and you're going to fight the end battles, and you're going to see loss all around you, and you will be outnumbered and outmanned. But if you will do what these stripling warriors did, your preservation will be as miraculous as was theirs, and that is my testimony. Anyone, any Latter-day Saint who will do what the stripling warriors did will be as miraculously preserved in our battle as were they. And that, I think, is one of the great messages of the war chapters and of the Book of Mormon. So just to summarize, what have we talked about? It has to be your idea. When is he going to be your Savior? When is this your church? When is the Book of Mormon your book? Are you going to assemble yourself together? Are you going to choose to follow a prophet and be exact when he commands? If he says to a 15-year-old, don't date yet, will you be exact and obey? When he talks about word of wisdom issues, will you be exact and say, I'm in the middle of war and he's given me a dis- instructions, and man, it doesn't make sense because I look around, no one else seems to be obeying him. But this is my moment. I am going to choose to follow him exactly in this moment. Because he considers you like a son or a daughter. We need to have that relationship. We need to be courageous, active, true, firm, undaunted. We need to hold on to faith when that dark moment arrives. And if we do those things, it is my testimony. It is the Book of Mormon's witness that we will be preserved in our battles. That's awesome. I like that as just that idea, teaching the whole, all 20 chapters. I want to geek out just for a minute on something that's just a really minor thing, but I think it's, to me, it's really interesting. So the age of these kids, like how old are they? Now we don't know, but if you go to Alma 16, verse one, it talks about that was the 11th year of the reign of the judges. And what happens in Alma 16? That's when Ammonihah is destroyed. Well, it's destroyed right around the time that the converts of Ammon come unto Jesus and they bury their swords deep in the earth. Why does this matter? Well, if you go to the 56th chapter of Alma, look what it says. Behold, here is one thing in which we have great joy, for behold, in the 20 and 6th year, I, Helaman, did march at the head of the 2,000 young men. So 15 years later, after they make this covenant to bear their weapons, he marches with this army. Now think about this. If the children of the people that made this covenant were too young to know what they were doing, if they were just maybe a year or two or three years old, they would be right around 18 at the time Helaman leads the armies. If they were born after they made the covenant, they were probably 14, 15 years old. And so, you know, it depends on who you read, but I really think a good estimate 
of their ages would be around 15 or 16. And it's laid out right there in the text. Now, if you're Joseph Smith and you're just making up the Book of Mormon, you've got to have it be internally consistent. So you've got to make sure you get those details in there. To me, that would just be a headache to kind of circle through all that while you're trying to create a text in the time that he does. And so I just use this as, once again, a feather in the cap of the restoration to say that the Book of Mormon is internally consistent, and it also helps us to envision the ages of these young guys. And just to geek out on Lord of the Rings really quick, if you've seen the film, the second film, The Two Towers, there's this scene where they're at Helm's Deep, and the orcs are outside, and they've lost the first and second wall, and they're about to breach and come into the final part of the war. But there's this one scene before that happens where the leaders are giving swords to kids. And I remember watching that scene, looking into their eyes. Imagine you're a 15-year-old kid. You've never even held a sword. The fear that you would have, thinking, I'm going to go against these trained, seasoned warriors. These are not... 15-year-old kids you're fighting. You're fighting men. And I like to tease my teenage boys. There's a difference between strong and old man strong, isn't there, Bryce? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just it's Experience. Fun to, it's fun to arm wrestle your 15-year-old or 16-year-old that thinks they're so strong and then old man strong kicks in. And so my point is, like, really personalize this and just think in a real setting, like, this is a real thing. This is a miracle beyond miracles to think that these 15, 16-year-old kids are doing this is fascinating. So I, I just like that as just a short geek out moment. Now, there's also tension in the Book of Mormon. Like, what do you do with a group of people who don't fight? And we have two groups in the Book of Mormon, don't we, Bryce, that won't fight. We have the king men on one hand, and we have the anti-Nephi-Lehi's on the other. Both groups won't fight to defend the Nephites, but they're not treated the same. Nor do they have the same reason for not fighting. The kingmen won't fight because they want the Nephites to fail. They want to just wreck everything. Now, there were, at least these guys have a replacement. Their replacement is, hey, we're going to put a king in charge. But we want to burn it to the ground to have our way. And the anti-Nephi-Lehites, I love that verse where it says that they were moved with compassion. They supported the, the war effort in other ways, but they didn't go and fight. And I think that that shows that the Book of Mormon is nuanced and that it shows that it's not a one-size-fits-all. War is so nuanced. And so the reason why they wouldn't fight is, to me, more important than that they wouldn't fight. And it reminds me of, of a young man by the name of Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss was a fellow who went to World War II and he fought in the Pacific Theater And he is in a 2004 documentary called The Conscientious Objector. And it focuses on his experience with the American forces as a combat medic. He would not carry a weapon and fire on the enemy. As a Seventh-day Adventist Christian refusing to carry a firearm, he became the first conscientious objector to be awarded with the Medal of Honor for his service above and beyond the call of duty during the Battle of Okinawa. He saved so many American lives in the midst of great conflict, but he didn't fire on the enemy. And it just reminds me of the idea that these anti-Nephi-Lehites, they didn't want to destroy the Nephite culture, the Nephite nation, but they just were so adamantly opposed to violence because of their past that they made this covenant. And I love that the Book of Mormon shows this nuance of the text. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And so that's why I really appreciate that the United States military recognized Desmond Doss. Here was a fellow who didn't draw a weapon in defense of his country, but he still resisted. You know, he resisted the, the forces that were attacking us. 
but at the same time, he held true to his principles. In Alma 48.14, it says that the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood, but then it says, if it were necessary. But then notice what it says. They were taught never to give the first offense and never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. So Moroni always is about defensive warfare, not offensive warfare. That's kind of who he is. And that's kind of the principle of the Book of Mormon. Don't be involved in an offensive battle. This is for defense only against their enemies. Now, the overall principle is the end of verse 16 of Alma 48, where it says, resist iniquity. Take a stand and always resist iniquity. But notice the nuance here. Sometimes, if it were necessary, they're shedding of blood. But sometimes they're told to prepare for war, and sometimes they're told to flee. And then sometimes they defend themselves. There are so many places in the Book of Mormon where they take territory without the shedding of blood. And Captain Moroni is always seeking a way to not shed blood. Now, well, when should we go to war? What have prophets said? Probably the most used quote on warfare is going to be the statement by David O. McKay, where he says there's basically two conditions. He says, there are two conditions which may justify a truly Christian man to enter. Mind you, I say enter, not begin a war. So right there, he starts at the beginning. Hey, we're not here to start wars. But number one, an attempt to dominate and to deprive another of his free agency. I think what he's saying there is, if someone is trying to dominate another, then we need to defend that person or ourselves. And the second one, he says, is loyalty to his country. Perhaps there's a third, defense of a weak nation that is being unjustly crushed by a strong, ruthless one. Paramount among these reasons, of course, is the defense of man's freedom. An attempt to rob a man of his free agency caused dissension even in heaven. To deprive an intelligent human being of his free agency is to commit the crime of the ages. So fundamental in man's eternal progress is his inherent right to choose, that the Lord would defend it even at the price of war. Without freedom of thought, freedom of choice, freedom of action within lawful bounds, man cannot progress. The greatest responsibility of the state is to guard the lives and protect the property and rights of its citizens. And if the state is obligated to protect its citizens from lawlessness within its boundaries, it is equally obligated to protect them from lawless encroachments from without, whether the attacking criminals be individuals or nations. And so I really like that quote by President McKay, and it really defines the principle. Another quote has to do with what is critical, and it's by President Kimball. And one of the things that goes against our cultural expectations, especially in the West, and I would say especially in the United States of America— and as a person who grew up during the arms race, I saw this growing up thinking, you know, how many weapons do we need? How many missiles do we need? And I remember hearing this quote by President Kimball, and it kind of goes counter to military philosophy or military design. And it's this idea of the armaments are not as critical as righteousness. And President Kimball really lays this out, and he gives some really interesting historical examples to really back up what he's saying that walls don't provide security. He says the Great Wall of China with its 1,500 miles of unbreakable walls, with its innumerable watchman towers, it was breached by the treachery of men. And then he talks about the Maginot Line in France. These forts thought to be so strong and impassable were violated as though they were not there. Strength is not in concrete and reinforcing steel. And protection is not in walls or mountains or cliffs. 
yet foolish men still lean on the arm of flesh. And then he talks about the walls of Babylon, which were taken over by Cyrus. He says this, The walls of Babylon were too high to be scaled, too thick to be broken, too strong to be crumbled, but not too deep to be undermined when the human element failed. When the protectors sleep and the leaders are incapacitated with banqueting and drunkenness and immorality, an invading enemy can turn a river from its course and enter through a riverbed. There was a river that kind of ran through this tunnel and they they did. The, The Persian army diverted the water and just went in under the walls. And then he talks about the walls of Jerusalem. He says, The high walls of Jerusalem deflected for a time the arrows and spears of the enemies, the catapults and the firebrands. But even then, wickedness did not lessen, and men did not learn their lessons. Hunger scaled the walls. Thirst broke down the gates. Immorality, cannibalism, idolatry, and godlessness stalked about till destruction came. A couple times, the high hills of Jerusalem and the walls failed them. Once in in Nephi's day, and then once after Jesus' day. And in both cases, you, you lay siege long enough, and the people run out of food. And then President Kimball says this, Experience is a dear teacher, but fools will learn by no other. But we continue on in our godlessness. He says, While bombs are detonated and tested and fallout settles the already sick world, we continue in idolatry and adultery. While corridors are threatened and concessions made, we live riotously and divorce and marry in cycles like the seasons. While leaders quarrel and editors write and authorities analyze and prognosticate, We break the Sabbath as though no command had ever been given. While enemies filter into our nation and subvert us and intimidate us and soften us, we continue with our destructive thinking, well, it won't happen here. Will we ever turn holy to God? Fear envelops the world, which could be at peace. In God is protection, safety, and peace. And he has said, I will fight your battles. But his commitment is always on condition of our faithfulness. Men depend on armaments as on idols. O foolish men who think to protect the world with armaments, battleships, and space equipment when only righteousness is needed. The answer to all of our problems, personal, national, and international, has been given to us many times by many prophets, ancient and modern. Why must we grovel in the earth when we could be climbing towards heaven? The path is not obscure. Perhaps it is too simple for us to see. We look to foreign programs, summit conferences, and land bases. We depend on forts or gods of stone or ships and planes and projectiles, our gods of iron, gods which have no ears, no eyes, and no heads. We pray to them for deliverance and depend upon them for our protection. That's President Kimball. Now, while he says that, and I totally agree, and I do believe that righteousness is critical, these men in these war chapters still had to have weapons. But all the weapons in the world are not going to save them if they're not allied with God. And so to me, unity and righteousness is critical. Weapons are important, but what is critical is that they're righteous. And it reminds me also of Tim Ballard's book about George Washington. There are several examples in his book. It's called The Washington Hypothesis. And he talks about how this general who was fighting a war of posts, and what that means is he had to constantly attack, nip at the enemy, and then flee constantly moving, constantly running. And George Washington knew that he was outgunned and he was outmanned and he was being outmaneuvered by the greatest army and navy in the history of the world. And he knew that he could not win the war if he did not have God on his side. 
And so there's some interesting things in this book. And one of the things that it talks about is how armies of, of this century had prostitutes that would accompany the armies. And the Continental Army wanted to be like the British Army and have prostitutes. And George Washington said, we can't do that. We can't behave in this manner if we want the God of heaven to protect us and to preserve us. And so he outlawed these kinds of things. And that wasn't really brought up in my history classes. And yet you read Tim Ballard's book and he fleshes some of these things out. And I think these are some of the things that we don't talk about in in history classes, maybe because we don't want to cast judgment on some of the modern behaviors of people. But I really like that. I really like that it shows George Washington as a man of faith and how he knew that the God of heaven was the only way that he was going to be able to pull out and find a way to snatch a victory against the greatest army and navy that the world had ever seen up until that point. Okay, from this, we're going to segue. We're going to go to who Moroni was. It's Alma 48, verse 11. It says that Moroni was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding, yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, whose soul did joy and liberty in the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. And so, Bryce, it seems like on one hand, he's all about freedom and liberty, almost like you know, willing to pick up the sword and fight. But yet on the other side, it says he did not delight in bloodshed, almost making him like, nonviolent, like a Quaker. So which is it? Well, you see this with every single gospel principle. I love the fact that the scriptures refer to the plan of salvation as a straight and narrow path. We're on a path to the celestial kingdom. So how many ways can you fall off a path? There are two edges. And Satan doesn't care which edge he gets you off as long as he gets you off. Yeah. Satan doesn't care which side as long as he gets you off the path. So... In almost every scenario, there's two opposites, or there's two balancing principles. So, for example, you can interpret the word of wisdom too strictly, and I know people who do. Or you could interpret the word of wisdom too loosely, and we've all seen people that do. You can do too much, or you can do too little. You can offer too much mercy or too much justice. You can be too kind or not kind enough. And the idea here is Latter-day Saints have to find a way to balance in that circumstance what is the right thing to do. And so when it says he was a man of perfect understanding, what I think it's trying to say is he knew when to grab the sword and fight for liberty. And he knew when to say, "Uh uh-uh, I will not take this person's life. So he's not shy to have a stratagem to go defend righteousness, but take what he's going to do with the prisoners. He does not have to kill the guards. And so he doesn't. And so in every scenario, you kind of have to pick, is in this scenario, am I going to lean on this side or am I going to lean on that side? And there's so many different ones that face Latter-day Saints right now. For example, on the question of gay marriage, there's tolerance and then there's truth. There is a time to teach truth and standards, but there's also a time to be tolerant. And Latter-day Saints have to understand in that scenario, what would a man of perfect understanding do? Is this a scenario where I would be more truthful and here's the expectation and here's what Latter-day Saints believe? Or is this a scenario where, for example, I would be more tolerant? Um, With our own children, we can be just or we can be merciful. And uh, we've all seen that, for example, with one child who does the exact same thing as another child, you might be more merciful in that circumstance because of that situation versus in this situation, I'm going to be a little bit more just. And so the key here is balance. And so one of the great questions Mike asked is how? How do you maintain balance? And may I suggest that that is the role of the Holy Ghost. 
I like that. That is exactly why we get the Holy Ghost. We quote that wonderful scripture that says, if you'll get the Holy Ghost, he'll tell you all things that you should do. He'll tell you how to balance the situation. He'll help you know when to be wise, when to be merciful, when to be just, when to do more than you should, and when to do less than you normally do. And all of those things, he is the great balancer. When you said wise, it reminds me of that verse that the saints are to be wise as serpents. Now that's an odd phrase, right? How are serpents wise? Well, if you think about it, if I strike too soon, I'm going to miss the prey and then I go hungry. If I strike too late, the prey's gone and I go hungry. The serpent has to know that exact moment, the right moment to strike. And the same thing applies to the servants of the Lord. We have to know when do we say, I need to do more here or I need to do less here. We need to be wise as serpents. And I I love that Moroni in one moment says, I will not hesitate to defend my country, even into the shedding of blood. But then in another moment, he says, I don't have to shed this blood. So we're not going to. And he found that beautiful balance between uh, sometimes opposite. And I think that idea of being wise as serpent and harmless as doves, I really like that. Moroni, when he could spare life, he did. He he found opportunities to spare them, and then he even found opportunities to let them be integrated into their society. We shared that verse earlier where some of the prisoners decided they wanted to convert to the Nephite religion, and they were set free. That's beautiful. I really like that idea of him being a man of perfect understanding, that it's the spirit which will prompt us to know, okay, now we, we got to we got to speak up, which puts the onus on us, doesn't it, Bryce? We have to be listening to know what to do and how to do that. And I think that also takes practice. Right. And back when, you remember when King Benjamin said, see that you do these things in wisdom and order. And I think that's the plea that the Lord says, look, if you always do the same thing in every situation, you're going to do something wrong. Um, I, I often use this example. I, I ask Latter-day Saints, do you hunt and fish on Sunday? And most Latter-day Saints would say, no, I don't. I don't I don't consider that in keeping with Sabbath standards. I don't hunt and fish on Sunday. And then I ask, is there a circumstance in which you would hunt and fish on Sunday and consider it a righteous act? And they say, of course. I can think of a circumstance in which I believe the Lord would direct me to hunt and fish on Sunday. I said, so the point is, You have to do the right thing for that circumstance. And the only way we know how to do that is if we're led by a divine assistant to say, in this circumstance, do the right thing. Go hunt and fish on Sunday. I would never paint my house on the Sabbath day. But if I have a neighbor who's shipping out to the military uh, at six o'clock in the morning and he's frantically trying to get his house ready and the one thing he hasn't had time to do is paint his house, then guess where I'm going to be on the Sabbath day? I'm going to be painting his house, and I'm going to consider that the right thing to do. So Latter-day Saints have to understand that we are governed by principles. Joseph said, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. But that means we have to have the wisdom to know in this circumstance, I'm going to do this, even though in another circumstance, I would not do that. And that's what it means to be a man of perfect understanding, is to know how to balance those different principles. I like that. Alma 54-55 is the two chapters which are really breaking down the prisoner exchange. Amron's taking women and children prisoners, and Moroni, he's taking just armed men. And so it really breaks down kind of their philosophies on what a prisoner is, 
And Amron basically says, yeah, we'll give you a, a woman for one of our guys or a child for one of our guys. And, and Moroni is like, that's not going to play out. To me, these two chapters are just illustrating the differences in their approach. Also, Moroni makes the point, you brought this war to us. And so I'm fighting a defensive war. A Mike Day packaging in these chapters is, I think food is scarce. I think it's expensive to feed these Lamanites, and Moroni doesn't want to show his hand to Amron, and so he uses a lot of brave speech. But I really think if you and I were there watching Moroni, we can see Moroni is probably stressed out. He's like, I only have so much food. I don't want to feed these prisoners anymore. Let's get this thing done. Let's get this war finished. And frankly, Moroni is outnumbered. And so I think this is expediency 101. Just one quick thought. I I think one of the things these war chapters are doing is they're trying to say, make sure you're on the right team. Because sometimes in the latter days, we fight for the wrong team. We get caught up in Satan's team, and we're, we're tempted by one of Satan's techniques, and we end up fighting a little bit on Satan's team. And I think one of the things these two chapters do is say, let's make sure you're on the right team. Look at the kind of leaders that Satan has on his team, and look at the kind of leaders that God has on his team. And make sure you're on the right team, because Satan doesn't care one whit about you. Amaron does not care one whit about this, these prisoners. He uses them as tools to accomplish his bigger goal, and that is to drink Moroni's blood. But Moroni, you can just see the tenderness in his heart, not just for the prisoners, but Lamanite prisoners and guards. And, and I just think this is a way to wave our hands and say, you know, make sure you're fighting on the right team. Because the world is tempting, and Satan's philosophies can be appetizing. But once you take a look at the kind of leaders that fight on that team, it helps you walk away and say, no, 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 I'm not going to be on Amaron's team. I'm just not. I will not fight for that team. Yeah. I really like this quote by Abraham Lincoln where he said, uh, you know, he was pacing the floor, wondering who would be the victor during the Civil War, North or South, and his secretary said to him, Mr. Lincoln, I hope the Lord is on our side. And then Lincoln turned and said, I hope that we're on the Lord's side. Instead of wondering and hoping that the Lord's on our side, let's ask ourselves that question. So in the 55th chapter, it's just a great story of how the Lamanite guards, are they get them drunk, the Nephites do, and they free them. There's also a, a sub-store or a subplot in this text, which we talked about earlier, way back in the podcast with 2 Nephi 5 and some others. But they have to go and find a Lamanite, and they have to search. Moroni says that he's searching for his guys to find a Lamanite, so they go and trick the guards. And to me, this is what I call the shibboleth moment. In other words, the Lamanite-Nephite distinction was not based on the pigmentation of their skin. Rather, it was a cultural distinction, both religious and political. And the way you could tell Lamanite was how they politically faced and religiously faced, but then also their speech. Who can say shibboleth or who can speak the way that these people speak so that you can fool them? If it was a pigmentation issue, then this chapter makes zero sense. And so go back and listen to our podcast on 2nd Nephi 5 if you want more details on that. But essentially, they get a guy who can speak to these guards and they trick them, they get them drunk. And it's just a great story. I remember as a teenager reading this going, man, this Moroni, he's pretty crafty. Okay. So then you get to, Helaman writes a letter and he's like, man, we're doing so good. The stripling warriors are awesome and the Lord has blessed us so much. But there's this undercurrent, this thread where Helaman's like, man, it would really help if we had some reinforcements. We're kind of low on food. And so then we get to this letter where finally Moroni writes to Pehoran. Look at the end of 59 where it says Moroni was angry with the government because of their indifference. They're just, they're lacking supplies. And so the 60th chapter is where he basically says, and he's got some strong words in here where he says, Pehoran, we are suffering. That's verse three. 
And you know what? We wouldn't complain, but we're just getting wrecked. We really need help. And then look at verse 7. Can you think to sit upon your thrones in a state of thoughtless stupor while your enemies are spreading the work of death around you? Yea, while they are murdering thousands of your brethren. Now, my take on verse 7 at the end of there where it says there's a difference between the work of death and murdering. And what I think is happening, I think they're doing human sacrifice. I think there's one sense of killing and war, but murdering is a different level. And so I think there's some of that undercurrent of human sacrifice, and it's kind of been softened in the translation of the text. And so he's like, we've got to put a stop to this. And he's so upset with Pehorn. And he says it again in verse 11, do you think that you could sit upon your thrones because of the exceeding goodness of God and that you could do nothing and he would deliver you? And so it's this strong rhetoric of like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to sit there? And sometimes you got to talk like that to get stuff done. Now, the thing is, Moroni doesn't know this, but Pehorin is helpless. And so this is another way to illustrate this idea of what do we do when we're communicating with someone and we just don't have the whole story? And what if you're the person that's being spoken to in such harsh language? How do you respond? And it reminds me of that talk by President Hinckley. He said this so many times when he was the president of the church where he said, part of being a Latter-day Saint is we should return evil with good. And I thought, how can I apply that in personal relationships? Or what if I'm in a position where I make a decision people don't like and they come at me? How am I going to respond? And I watched President Hinckley as he interacted with the media, and sometimes they would throw some really mean questions at him. And he didn't seem to get his feathers ruffled. He just seemed to be like, okay, I I can take that question. And he was a master, wasn't he, Bryce, at handling that stuff? Yes, and I take you back to last week's podcast where we talked about when is conflict justified? And if you do it the Lord's way, you'll get the Lord's help. And one of the rules of conflict being justified is you cannot be guilty of the second offense. It is human nature when someone berates us and just tears us down, like Moroni tore down Pehorin. It's natural to turn right around and say, you idiot or you fool, and we return evil for evil. But the Lord's way is to just say, no, I'm not going to be guilty of the second offense. And so Pehorin doesn't do that. And one of the great letters is Pehorin's letter back to Moroni. And he says in verse 9, and I just love this man, in your epistle, you have censured me. Oh, that was a subtle way of saying it. He had done more than censured him. He'd ripped him to shreds. In your epistle, you have censured me, but it mattereth not. I am not angry, but do rejoice in the greatness of your heart. And Oh my goodness, is that a lesson for all of us? To say, wait a minute, can I see this from their perspective? If I were Moroni and I thought the chief judge were being negligent, I would want that very reaction. How can I get angry at this man when he was reacting in a way that he should have reacted had the circumstances been what he thought they were? And that's the person who says, I've just been hurt by you, but can I pause and jump into into your thoughts and say, why would you do that to me and help me see why you possibly would do that? It helps us be kinder and more forgiving when we pause and we consider the circumstances. And so I love that. He says, it mattereth not, I am not angry. I do rejoice in the greatness of your heart. Now, let me give you some information that you don't have so that we can correct this situation. But man, what a lesson to all of us when someone does evil to us, that we not return it back, that we pause and say, why Why would they be saying that? And we see the greatness of their heart and not get caught up in the censure of their words. That takes a lot of emotional maturity. It does. I got to tell you, I'm still, Bryce, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm still on my journey 
to learn how to do this. But I think of all the places where this can happen, it's in those really important relationships. And so let this be an invitation to us with those relationships to cultivate a nurturing environment. And when you are censured, find a way to just pause, take a breath. And see the greatness of their heart. Yeah. I'm going to go back to one quick verse back in 60 in Moroni's letter to Pehoran and taking us back to last week where we talked about lesson from the war chapters and that the Nephites had all power over the Lamanites until they did two stupid things. They're the same two stupid things we do. So if you didn't hear last week's podcast, I'd encourage you to go back. But just as a confirmation, I want to point this out in the text. He writes to Pehoran in verse 16. This is Alma 60, 16. Had it not been for the war which broke out among ourselves, yea, were it not for these king men who caused so much bloodshed among ourselves, yea, at a time we were contending among ourselves, if we had united our strength as we hitherto have done, we would have succeeded. In other words, the reason we are now fighting this war is because we fought amongst ourselves. So I just take that back as just a reminder of last week that it was the contentions and the dissensions of the Nephites that opened the front door. And if there's a lesson to be learned, it's that when we contend among ourselves and descend away from those who lead us, we open the door to the enemy to march right back in. And then once the enemy has possession of our fortified cities, it's so much harder to win them back. You know, this is so applicable today. There's so much more in the war chapters, but we will stop there. We're going to just end. And next time we get together, we're going to be in Helaman. I can't believe we're actually going to be in Helaman. So we thank you for listening. And uh, we hope that these things we've talked about in the war chapters are relevant in your life and that we can take some of these principles and apply them and do better and be better. And with that, we will see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.